Hello and welcome to the August edition of the Vera Magazine podcast. It's Vera Magazine in podcast form. I'm Johnny Ensel, Editorial Director, and I'll be joined over the next 45 minutes or so by a cast of experts from around the globe as we journey fearlessly through the worlds of film, TV, music, culture and travel. And this time around we'll be preparing to enter a dome of dance music with Daft Punk, sampling a few drams at a very serious whiskey bar in Edinburgh, revisiting the history of roller skating in New York, and there'll even be a little bit of this. She's in a very curious relationship and uh, she has hot dogs for fingers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've all been there. (laughs) And we start with Red Hot, uh, the bit of the podcast where we look at all the kind of trending things that are happening around the globe in different Virgin Atlantic destinations, things to experience, to eat, to drink, and to otherwise sample. And for this, we're joined, as always, by Jessica Prupus, Deputy Editor and a woman in the know. Hello, Jess. Hello. Are you feeling full of knowledge? Yeah, feeling full of knowledge and also very on the floor. (laughs) grounded (laughs) coming to you live from my bedroom floor okay fantastic well you can channel that grounded energy into um, some fantastic experiences for us so where should we start what's your first red hot recommendation for august uh daft punk ah daft punk the french uh, robotic uh, dance music duo yeah, I mean, they aren't actually robots. They just wear robot helmets. Ah, I was confused. Thank you for Clara. I was confused about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everyone knows Daft Punk. They're the French electro duo, recently retired, you know, one of the most important electronic groups of all time. And they're being celebrated in LA this month uh, at Contact, which is being billed as a live multisensory Daft Punk experience. That's my favorite sort of Daft Punk experience. <laughs> The only kind. The only kind. And what what goes on at Contact? So there will be tribute performances, which are going to take place on an LED pyramid stage, uh, surrounded by this 10,000 square foot domed screen. So you can picture this dome screen around you being projected with visuals. Um, and it's just kind of like an epic, immersive dance party. Wow. Okay. So you're going to be kind of inside the Daft Punk universe. Mm-hmm. Inside their world. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that sounds great. I suppose it also um, suggests a new approach for bands because uh, ABBA famously now have ABBA Voyage in London, which is a holographic representation of ABBA. A bit like this, a kind of multi-sensory, next generation, 3D performance. Uh, do you think that this is a bit of trend for bands? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess this is a way for bands that might not be gigging anymore or be retired to live on in perpetuity. Mm, absolutely. Well, I, it's good for fans, I suppose, and good for bands. You know, they don't even have to turn up and people are <laughs> raving to them. Yeah, I'm quite keen on the ABBA experience myself. Great. And this is in LA. And when does it open? It opens uh, beginning of August. Fantastic. Okay. All right, let's move on. What about uh, eating and drinking? What's red hot in those areas? Well, in Vegas, we've got basically the poshest side dish to ever side dish. What are we talking about here? So we've got the millionaire's macaroni at Scotch 80 Prime, which is this new, like, super posh uh, steakhouse in Vegas. Wow. And what makes this the most luxurious mac and cheese to ever exist? Uh, Well, brace yourself because it is a macaroni dish piled with black truffle, a poached egg, um, 
Parmesan cream, prosciutto, and then topped with a bit of gold leaf. Okay. I mean, if you put gold on anything, it's going to make it fancy, really. Yeah. And I think a lot of restaurants have kind of caught on to this um, and just kind of like mm. topped a bit of gold on it and then charged, you know, three figures for <laughs> a side dish. I mean, but this does sound delicious, you know, with the truffle and the prosciutto. Okay. Well, next time I'm in Vegas, if I've had a bit of luck on the tables, then I'll definitely go and try that, I think. Maybe not otherwise. So, well, let's talk about drinking then. What What are we drinking? The 90s are back in the cocktail world, big time. I mean, I, I wasn't really eligible to drink in the 90s. So what were the hot drinks back then? Don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was definitely not drinking in the 90s, but I've heard that the Cosmo, the Tequila Sunrise, the Lychee Martini, the Apple Teeny, those were all really popular drinks back then. Yeah, somewhat informed by pop culture and tv right mm -hmm. a certain show called sex in the city yes well i do remember that okay so these drinks are coming back where can you try them you can try the tequila sunrise and the lychee martini at a new bar in hong kong called the thirsty shaker uh they've got actually a whole menu of retro-ish cocktails so they're really going in on the trend uh the apple teeny the Gatsby in Washington, D.C. does their own take on an apple teeny called Them Apples. And then if you want to just go for a straight up Cosmo, you can try it at Analog in New York in Greenwich Village, which is a basement bar that probably serves the best one in the city. Great. OK, very good recommendations. Thank you. Um, let's take things a little bit more highbrow. I'm, I'm after something artistic that is also trendy. What can you provide me with? Well, if you like the outdoors... I do. And you like art... Yes. You can put them together in a new book called Art Escapes. It's edited and written by Grace Banks, who's a culture editor in London. She's kind of like scoured the world for the best outdoor installations, sculptures, like site-specific works. Fantastic. Any highlights? Well, there's Jupiter Artland in Edinburgh, which happens yearly uh, in the summer. Yes, Jupiter. I've actually been there. It's a fantastic place to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's got a really wonderful, I think it's called a landform sculpture by an artist called Charles Jenks, which is a kind of almost Teletubbies-esque a uh, kind of mound that you can walk around but uh, it's very peaceful and I know they've got work by Anish Kapoor and other kind of big artists like that. Yeah it's it's kind of a big deal isn't it um, and they've also got their own festival which happens in August uh, a music festival called Jupiter Rising. Uh, it's happening the 26th to the 28th of August uh, and this is quite a cool kind of like boutique festival curated by Scottish artists um, and this year it's curated by members of bands like Young Fathers and Antiflow. Great. Uh, well, I like those bands uh, and I like that place. So this sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to somewhere that you can stay. Can we talk about red hot accommodation, please? Yeah, definitely. Uh, are you keen to go to St. Bart's? I would be keen to go to St. Bart's. That is a small kind of luxurious Caribbean island. Am I right? Yes, very luxurious, very remote. And a new hotel opened a few months ago called Le Twenty. Le Twenty. Le Twenty. Le Twenty. <laughs> Which is just like the height of St. Bart's luxury. Mm, fantastic. Uh, so I, I'll take a guess here. Pampering services, uh, infinity pools, crisp white bedsheets, that sort of thing. Yeah, check, check, check. So... 
it's on the east coast of the of the island, which is a bit less developed mm-hmm. uh, than the west coast. So it's really secluded. Every room is a suite that's got a heated private pool. You get breakfast delivered to your suite. So you never even have to leave if you don't want to. But if you do want to, there's this really like swish beach club Great. with really nice views of the Caribbean. Well, I'll be there. Once I've um, won big on the slots in Vegas, had my luxury mac and cheese, then I'll be flying out there immediately. Uh, and I'll see you there, I'm guessing. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I can afford it, but... <laughs> well, you know, let, you need to believe in the universe okay, and it'll yeah. deliver. I'll, I'll manifest it. Yeah, manifest it and I'll see you at the beach club. Okay, see you there. Okay, thanks, Jess. We now move on to Location Scout, and the location that we're delving into this episode is Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, one of the most beautiful cities in the UK, and uh, somewhere that's famous, as is all of Scotland, for whiskey, the amber nectar. And to find out a bit more about Edinburgh and the world of whiskey, we're going to chat with a local and a whiskey lover, Mike McEachern. All right, let's see if we can get Mike on the line right now. Hello, Mike speaking. Hey, Mike, it's Johnny. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. It's a beautiful sunny day in Edinburgh. Lovely to speak to you. Yeah, and whereabouts are you? Uh, So I'm on Victoria Street in the city centre, and I'm standing outside the Bow Bar, which is one of my favourite pubs in all of the city. It's a kind of old place, which is full of cask-aged beers, and it's got a phenomenal single malt selection. Fantastic. And and this is a sort of typical afternoon for you, is it? Um, it's not really a typical afternoon going out drinking whiskey with <laughs> friends, but it is typical that I'm out and about researching stories in Edinburgh because I'm a, I'm a freelance travel writer and I write a lot about Scotland and particularly Edinburgh, which is where I currently call home. Mm. So t- talk to me about Bobar. Why are you here? Is this a favourite of yours? Yeah, so Edinburgh's got dozens and dozens and dozens of great pubs and bars, and they've, most of them have got fabulous whiskey selections, but the Bobar's kind of different because even though it looks as if it opened maybe a couple of hundred years ago. It opened in the 1980s with a very, very clear kind of USP, and that is no music, no kind of games or anything like that. It's purely a drinking establishment, which is why it's maybe sometimes intimidating to tourists who walk right past it, even though it's on one of the busiest streets in Edinburgh. And it's simple because it sells cask beer and it's got arguably the best whiskey selection in the city and we're talking about rare 18 year olds rare 21 year olds you know all the Speyside drams all the isla drams new drams from sky from oban and maybe slightly more unlikely ones you might not find from the south of scotland let's say from drumfreeshire so it's all of this it's got a dram of the day dram of the week uh, it's also quite affordable, so that's why it's a favourite. Me being typically Scottish and quite cheap. <laughs> and for our um, American listeners or anybody who who might not know, what is a dram? A dram is a shot of whiskey. It's just our way of saying shot. So it's a small kind of one to two inch glass of whiskey served as it is, no ice, no water, no nothing. So talk to me about um, Edinburgh in the context of whiskey then. Or maybe, you know, whiskey in the context of Scotland overall. Like, how are these places interlinked with this particular spirit? What does it mean to, to a city like Edinburgh, whiskey? 
Um, okay, so whiskey is the national drink of Scotland. It's been produced here for three, four hundred years. It was first produced in Scotland. Um, I know the Irish claim that they did so first, but that's actually wrong. And you have all these... <laughs> that, that presumably is disputed. I am, it might be disputed, but we could pick a fight over that any day. Um, it became like the the lifeblood of um, the Highlands and the Islands. So every small town had a distillery and most of these were illegal at the time. Then over the years, they've kind of spread out into the bigger cities and you can pretty much find a really good whiskey distillery everywhere in Scotland. The main concentration still remains up in the Highlands and Speyside, but it was something that was really apparent is there wasn't any in Edinburgh. You know, Edinburgh is this main tourist gateway as the Edinburgh Festival, as the world's largest Hogmanay Festival at New Year. And it's got all these fabulous bars and whiskey establishments, but no whiskey was ever produced here, or it certainly hasn't been for a couple of hundred years until about three years ago, the Holyrood Distillery opened in an old 108-year-old building in the shadow of Arthur's Seat, which is Edinburgh's dormant volcano, which kind of sits right in the middle of um, the city centre. So Holyrood Distillery is the first whiskey distillery to produce whiskey in Edinburgh for more than 200 years. So kind of around that, this whole scene has started to develop again. And Edinburgh has gone from being a beer city to kind of a whiskey city. And because of that, there's more whiskey bars, there's more cocktail joints opening, um, serving whiskey menus, there is the new Johnny Walker experience. So Johnny Walker is the world's largest whiskey brand. It's owned by Diageo, the multinational spirit company. And they have just spent an, an, a huge amount of money. We're talking millions and millions on this kind of Disneyland of whiskey, which is opened on Princess Street with a prime view of Edinburgh Castle. It's kind of like a mini department store of whiskey. It's five floors. There's sensory experiences. You can do a tour. You can get personalized whiskey that you can blend and make and there's an absolutely corking rooftop bar serving whiskey cocktails with a view of Edinburgh Castle so you've got that you've got the Holyrood distillery now Leith is a suburb on the waterfront of Edinburgh there's now the port of Leith distillery which is opening there that's going to be Scotland's first vertical distillery meaning that it's all built on top of each other because it's being built in a in an urban environment. So it's like a kind of whiskey skyscraper. In a sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of this is happening. Then you have Glen Eagles Hotel up in Perthshire, which is arguably Scotland's most famous country house hotel resort. They've just opened the Glen Eagles townhouse right in the city centre. And again, that's got an exclusive whiskey bar. So there's all this kind of whiskey talk and vibe going on in Edinburgh, which it hasn't had for such a long time. So, Mike, just talk us through some bars then. So we've talked about the Bow Bar and whether or not they're whiskey bars, like where would you recommend? Because Edinburgh is known for its pubs, right? Okay, so the most beautiful street in Edinburgh is the Royal Mile, which goes downhill for about a kilometre from um, Edinburgh Castle to Holyrood Palace, which is the Queen's home in Scotland. And it is full of tourist pubs, but these tourist pubs are fabulous. So on the Royal Mile, you have the Whiskey Rooms, you have Albanach. They're both fabulous old school pubs with loads and loads and loads of whiskies in them. Down on Coburn Street, you have the Malt Shovel, which is another fabulous old pub. Again, great 
top shelf whiskies in there. You can't go far wrong with one of those. And then kind of maybe further afield, one of my favourite bars in Edinburgh is Tuchter's, which is in the West End. And that's a great place for watching rugby because it's close to Murrayfield Stadium. So when the Six Nations Rugby Tournament is on, that's a phenomenal place to watch rugby. And they have a whole wall full of whiskies of all kind of highlands lowlands islands whatever you want so that's also a good option they also do paddles of whiskey so if you think of a paddle of craft beer you can get a paddle of about five different whiskies and then you can compare and contrast the different aromas and flavors then for maybe something slightly more sophisticated there's a couple of cocktail bars in edinburgh which have got They've got kind of a global reputation now. There's a place called Bramble, which is very famous. And there's another great cocktail joint called Panda and Sons, which opened up during the speakeasy boom of about kind of 10 years ago. So it's set up as a hairdresser, but you go in and it's a cocktail bar. Well, Mike, you've mentioned the festival. Can we talk about that a bit more? Because that is... Of course we can. Yeah, that's my favourite time of the year in the city. Yeah, so... I think if you haven't been to Edinburgh during the festival, you, to be honest, need to travel more. Well, it is world-renowned, and there's quite a lot to unpick with the festival, isn't there? Like, it's actually a few festivals, and, I mean, can you give us a kind of a lowdown for an absolute beginner of what it's all about? Of course, yeah. So, it's the world's largest arts festival, and it encompasses everything from comedy to theatre to drama to visual arts to circus to burlesque to children's. There's a book festival, there's a film festival, there's a classical musical festival, there are gigs in parks... It runs from the first weekend in August to the last weekend, and there are something like three to 4,000 shows held every day. There are something like 300 venues, and these are from the big, large concert halls and theatres right down to unlikely venues, the Botanic Gardens. The shows are held in caravans. One was held in a public toilet last year. They hold shows that walk around the city. I mean, it's a moving beast of art. And because of that, in, in whiskey terms, what's great is all the bars and all the restaurants get an extra license. So lots of them, which would normally close at around 11 or 12 o'clock, are open until about 3 or 4 in the morning. And some are open 24 hours a day. So it's a big bacchanal festival of drinking and partying and laughing. And I can't think of a better time to come to the city, to be honest. Well, Mike, you've made going to Edinburgh any time of year sound appealing, but especially Well, that's because it is, it is the greatest city on earth. So <laughs> it's an easy sell. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for chatting with us. And I'll let you get back uh, inside now. I'm sure you're... No um... problems. I have got a 12-year-old Macallan waiting just for me. I presume that that is a very nice whiskey and I will not keep you from it. So but thank you so much for telling us about your city. All right, cheers. And as we say in Scotland, Slangivar, which means cheers. Cheers to that. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, bye. Jocelyn Marie Good is the founder-director of the African-American Rollerscape Museum. Based in New York City, the museum's stated aim is to preserve and advance rollerskate culture through the lens of the black experience, as well as organising some extremely fun rollerskating sessions, of course. As skating becomes more popular among people from all walks of life, Jocelyn is reminding the world where roller skate culture came from and what its heritage means to the African-American communities in New York and beyond. She spoke to us to explain why her museum project is on a roll.
Hey y'all, my name is Jocelyn Marie Good, also known as Artist Supergood, and I am the founder and director of the African American Roller Skate Museum. A lot of people think of roller skating as a frivolous hobby perhaps, but upon closer examination, especially looking into history, some interesting patterns emerge about the relationship of roller skating to African-American culture. Uh, you could take it back to the beginnings of the creation of roller skating, which was in the 1800s. And it started out as a form of recreation exclusively for elite whites. African-Americans weren't even permitted to enter rinks. It was only until after World War II where African-Americans were very uh, instrumental in helping to win the war. When they came back, they were no longer standing for some of the injustices that existed, including exclusion from swimming pools, amusement parks, and roller skating rinks due to Jim Crow and segregation. And so the roller skating rinks were one of the first places that African-Americans and white Americans mobilized together to fight so that there could be desegregated spaces. So that's significant because it proceeds the whole civil rights movement. It was mobilizing around roller skating. And the reason roller skating was important was it was encouraged to help returning veterans manage their post-traumatic stress disorder. So on one hand, you have roller skating related to social progress, and you also have roller skating related to mental wellness. And those origins continue to be relevant from the 1940s to the present day. When there's a lot of social uprising, interest in roller skating goes up. For example, in the 1970s, there was a big disco era and it was a moment where people were really trying to associate together and come together and accept all people. And roller skating was right at the heart of bringing black culture and the greater American culture together. And then we go into the 90s where, you know, hip hop emerged. And again, roller skating rinks were the first places to incubate hip hop culture where it was not permitted, you know, and accepted in the rest of America. And slowly you saw the culture spread out where now hip hop is an international phenomenon. So now we just had the pandemic and again, you know, a moment of global chaos and social, you know, grief, roller skating emerges as an activity that a lot of people turn to, to find community, to manage their stress, to get fit and to do something that's really inexpensive. And so today we have kind of this interesting thing where you have classic skaters and people who have retained the stylistic traditions of roller skating that's predominantly been created in the African-American community and a new generation of roller skaters that's been fueled by social media. And they are younger and they're, you know, of all different ethnicities and all different abilities and walks of life. But it's in this pivotal time we're seeing a lot of social change and a lot of awareness about what's going wrong and people demanding things to be different. So today in New York, if a skating enthusiast was like, where can I go to skate? There's actually a beautiful spectrum. 
you know, let's just start at the high end. The most recent creation for roller skating in the last couple of weeks has been Disco Oasis. And that's the most expensive experience. It's an immersive light show, definitely catered to maybe a tourist audience. Then there's Flippers in Rockefeller Center, similarly a novelty attraction that's only there for the summer. But for the people who are really true skaters, there's a whole underground scene that includes Brooklyn Skates, It's held in an old Salvation Army in a tiny basketball gym. But that's where the heart of the skate culture meets up a couple of times a week. There's also Riverbank State Park. So if you're not from Brooklyn, I live uptown. And the uptown underground skate community skates there for $2 a session. Thinking about why I would want to create an African-American roller skate museum, it's really because I'm an artist. You know, I'm an artist first, and then I have become a skater when, you know, my options were closed for dancing during the pandemic. So that's what attracted me to roller skating. I was never good at it as a kid. And when I found that, you know, dance studios were closed, they were social distancing, you couldn't be close to people. I saw that roller skating was a great solution because, you know, people are moving and they're dancing in a way on the skates. But there's also a level of black joy that surprised me. You know, at the end of 2020, I saw that after all these terrible things had happened within our community, it was a whole bunch of people gathering, happy, skating, socially distant on wheels. So that attracted me to it. And, you know, as an artist, I'm always curious. So I do research. I want to figure out what's going on. I want to know the context. And what I found was a bunch of grievances coming from African-Americans about cultural appropriation. And so when I learned about what was happening with roller skating, my mind said, we need our own cultural institution instead of trying to demand, you know, platforms owned by people who their agenda is not our agenda. Their agenda is to make money. Their agenda is to advance their platforms by whatever means necessary. So I said, well, let's stop demanding that the people causing the problems would be the ones to give us the solution. We have enough resources within ourselves to house, to author, and to protect our own culture. So the mission of the African American Roller Skate Museum is to curate roller skating culture through the lens of the Black experience by mixing it with fashion, art, music, and dance with the intention of empowering local skate creators, providing funds for them to curate where they live versus putting so much resources into one building. You know, and people always ask me, where is the museum? But I'm taking the approach of where we're going with technology. You know, and I think about it as a decentralized museum. That's something you see happening in like the metaverse, these decentralized organizations. And the power in being decentralized is that you can't get shut down by a pandemic, for example. Another goal is to present roller skating for people who do not roller skate. For example, if you think about basketball, Basketball now is a sport and also a form of entertainment. People who don't play basketball are able to experience it in this very spectacular way. They can go to games that have shows. And I thought, well, why can't roller skating, you know, take a similar place in our form of culture? So the things that I've done with the museum, you know, I've done some body paint exhibitions. I did a photography exhibition in the metaverse where I curated women photographers who were also roller skaters and curated in a a virtual gallery, so to speak, where people can actually interact in that space. 
I've also directed The Wiz on Roller Skates, which was a pilot production reinterpreting a classic movie called The Wiz and adding roller skate choreography. So if you can imagine a dance theater musical on wheels, that was the essence of this pilot. And I find that the folks that, that I'm attracting are people who are within the culture and have something that they want to share and have been waiting for a platform to have their narrative preserved as a form of history. And then people who are outside the culture who recognize the problems of cultural appropriation and want to be informed and want to make sure that they're showing up as advocates and that they're not participating in the problem. So it's, it's clear that there is a need in a space for an institution that advocates and isn't driven by profit but is driven by wanting to do a, um, a public service as well as social justice. So I see roller skating continuing to be something that just grows as more people realize they can learn how to skate and as more people are empowered to step up and create those opportunities. In the grand scheme of things, I think roller skating is definitely here to stay. It's something that also allows people to be seen we live in an attention economy now where people are satisfied with being recognized and seen through social media. And I imagine that the visual nature of roller skating is another layer that's never existed in its history and will be another driving force to keep people participating. You can find out more about the African American Roller Skate Museum at afamrollerskatemuseum.org. It's now time for What's On, the bit of the podcast where we tell you what's on Vera and why you should be excited about it. And I'm joined for this by film critic Simran Hans, a writer for The Guardian and The New York Times, among other venerable publications. Hello. Hello, nice to be here. Well, let's talk about some movies, first of all. So what movie in particular has caught your eye? It's a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. They're known as the Daniels. And it truly is everything, everywhere, all at once. If you haven't seen this movie, you've probably heard people talking about it. Yes, I've heard of it. It's, it's a kind of like multidimensional, like kind of full throttle in your face kind of movie. Is that right? I would say all of those adjectives are correct, but let me attempt to try and kind of walk you through the setup and the plot. It's kind of complicated, but but kind of stick with me. So it's about a laundromat owner called Evelyn, who's played by the great Michelle Yeoh. And she's got a college age daughter called Joy, who's in a gay relationship that she kind of accepts, but doesn't really like to acknowledge. And things are getting tricky because her dad, Joy's grandfather, is visiting and he's a kind of traditional Chinese patriarch. So you've got that going on. Her marriage is on the rocks. And to make things even worse, her business, the laundromat, is going to be audited by the tax people. And the evil tax woman, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is basically making her do all her receipts again. So there's a lot going on. She's very stressed. And uh, all of the problems are kind of everywhere. So there's some sort of intergenerational conflict. There's admin. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. a good setup for a thrilling movie. Exactly. And so basically what happens is she is at an extremely inopportune moment. 
visited by a version of her husband from an alternative universe. And he tells her that her life's in danger and that a demonic version of her daughter called Jobo Tupaki is going to destroy the universe. And that in order to stop her, she's got to draw on all of her skills from all of the versions of herself across all of these kind of multiple universes. And in order to kind of acquire those skills, she has to do this thing called verse jumping. And that's where the kind of absurd comedy comes in because in order to jump to another universe the trick is to do something incredibly unexpected so the the directors the Daniels they kind of ring a lot of comedy from this idea of the Asian mother who's sort of you know very prim and very proper doing really silly things like I don't know licking a shoe or whatever right and lots of kind of silly things that are very funny happen for her to kind of get into the other universes. And in these other universes, she is an action movie star, which is obviously a callback to Michelle Yeoh's career as uh, yeah. an, I, an action movie star in Crouching and Tiger. A, and a great sort of martial artist and all of this sort of stuff. Exactly. And, and the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is kind of one of her most star-making films, right? And so you sort of see her in that other world, imagining this other life and kind of getting to embody a less drab version of herself than her reality. In another one, she's a chef. In another one, she's in a very curious relationship with a a woman who I won't name. And uh, she has hot dogs for fingers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, we've all been there. (laughs) Or at least dreamt of that in some sort of like surreal. Exactly. It's, it's super silly, right? All of these different kind of situations that she finds herself in. But also these different universes remind us that this character is not one thing. She's a multidimensional human being. She is, as the, the film critic Justin Chang put it, a Chinese immigrant who's also a mother. She's a daughter. She's a businesswoman. She's a fighter. She's a chef. She's a singer. She's an actor. She's a genius. And she's a screw up. And not everybody is allowed that complexity in most movies, let alone kind of a 50 something Asian woman but something that I think is like really smart about this film is that it's this kind of creative cinematic exploration of existential dread so if you think when we perform all of these different roles that kind of splits us up and makes us become fragmented and that's the thing that I I kind of I didn't go into detail uh, about when you do the verse jumping Mm. so in order for Evelyn to sort of defeat or conquer or tame this version of her daughter, she has to get all these different skills by jumping across the different multiverses. But the catch is that if you do that too much, then you're at risk of kind of becoming weaker and and being destroyed yourself. And I think that's quite a clever metaphor for the ways in which we kind of split ourselves into these different performances to please other people uh, instead of kind of living our true authentic selves Mm. um, and living the lives that we want to lead. And I I think it's a really kind of smart exploration of that. And I I also think it's a a really good metaphor for the immigrant experience as well. Mm. Um, What immigrant mother has not had to uh, dissociate in order to please all of the, the different people who are expecting things from her? Wow. Well, I think you've summed that up admirably, given the hot dog fingers and everything else. So it's, it's sort of like the multiverse's metaphor then, like maybe a kind of like slight extension of the kind of conceptual multiverse that we've seen in some other films recently. Yeah, I guess like if you think about the multiverse as a, a concept, right, it allows us to explore 
the hero in lots of different situations. So it makes us ask the question, if our hero was put in another universe, what different things would they have to do? What different parts of themselves would they have to activate? But obviously with superheroes, that is sort of not super relevant to the everyday person. And what's interesting about this film is that it kind of uses a very ordinary protagonist Mm. and it doesn't see the superpowers as things that are that extraordinary. They're kind of extensions of human skills. Mm, Okay, great. So it's bringing some level of humanity to a a very kind of extended sci-fi concept. It's like, it's really it's really hard to uh, to describe it. This is why you've got to watch it um, <laughs> because it's it's very grounded in these very human emotional relationships and dynamics. But it allows the the sci fi aspect allows the filmmakers and the actors to be very playful and it's very funny and very weird. It's not like anything else you will have seen. I think that I mean that's a great reason to watch it, right? It's completely original and it sounds completely original. It sounds great. It, it is. A, it's a really good movie. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the multiverse because one of the other big films that you can watch on board is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which is the kind of Marvel's beginnings of exploration into the, the kind of multiple possibilities that they can put their heroes in. So I thought that was quite interesting. It chimes with that. My knowledge of the Marvel multiverse is Benedict Cumberbatch is Doctor Strange. And at the beginning of, of Spider-Man, right, he starts spinning this kind of golden magical wheel and yes. uh, creating a, another universe for, for Peter Parker to fall into. Yes. I don't know how this relates to that. But. Well, it, it's kind of similar, but it's more like when he does that, performs the action that you're describing, you can kind of see almost like the franchise being mapped out before you. It's more like you can see every possible spin-off movie, you know, flashing before your eyes. So maybe more sort of enjoyably uh, blockbustery, let's say, than human in the way that everything everywhere all at once seems to be. But you also have some other films that you were going to pick out for us that are less kind of blockbustery and more, would you say, they're, they're hidden gems? Yes, I would say that these films are, are hidden gems. And I think the way we talk about movies is so kind of tied to the Oscars schedule and awards and box office. And sometimes they're really great movies that if they don't have a great campaign, they get lost. And uh, one of these movies is a Netflix produced film called The Lost Daughter. And that film didn't get the same push as its uh, fellow female directed, I don't know, Power colleague. Of the the Power of the Dog. Uh, and this film is directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's an adaptation of the Elena Ferrante novel. And it's really good. It stars Olivia Coleman as a, a mother of two who goes on a sort of solo holiday to, I believe it's Greece. In the book, it's Italy, but in the film, it's Greece. And she becomes really fascinated by this loud family that sort of park themselves on the beach next to her and um, she sort of becomes fascinated by them and particularly um, young mother and her daughter who sort of trigger these memories of what it was like for her to raise her own children when she was a young academic and we sort of flash back to that part of the story in which she's played by Jessie Buckley who is brilliant and these women look nothing alike they really have very little in common kind of physically but the through line with the performances and how they kind of relate to each other is is really remarkable. Is it a, a film... Do you come away feeling ruminative or uplifted about or sad? Like, what does it leave you with? <laughs> I 
definitely don't think that you should watch this movie expecting to be uplifted. It's definitely more thought provoking. There's a lot of questions about what it means to be a good mother, what it means to be an ambivalent mother. You know, what is it like for an intellectual woman or a woman with a kind of fierce sexual appetite being forced to sort of tamp down certain aspects of herself in order to be a good mother? And I think that's a question that a lot of mothers have on their minds. How do you negotiate those things? How do you maintain your sense of who you are when you have children? Mm. Um, And this film kind of allows the protagonist to explore those sort of darker thoughts in a way that that women aren't usually allowed to on screen. Mm, Interesting. Okay. And you have one more. I do. It's a British film called After Love. It's directed by Aleem Khan. Uh, It's his directorial feature debut and it is extremely elegant and beautiful and confident for a first film. It stars Joanna Scanlon And she plays this character called Mary, who is a white British woman who has converted to Islam for her Muslim husband. And when he very suddenly and tragically dies, she, like in all movies where someone dies at the beginning, comes into possession of his phone. And by looking at his phone, she discovers that he had been in kind of very regular contact with some other people. Mm. And he was living this other almost double life that she knew nothing about. And so she sets off on a kind of quest to Calais to find out more about, you know, who her husband was and this life that he led that she she really knew nothing about. And, you know, the performances are really nuanced. It's really moving. And it's not just about her idea of their relationship becoming undone, but also sort of how her sense of self kind of crumbles when she realizes that the person that she sort of changed her life for wasn't who he said he was. And Joanna Scanlon, she is remarkable in this film. She won a BAFTA for her role. She should have really been nominated for an Oscar, but this is not the kind of flashy film that would kind of get a look in there. It's much quieter. It's much more ruminative. Brilliant. Well, it's interesting that you've picked three films that all feature women kind of at pivotal points in their lives, developing a sense of themselves and the kind of multiplicity of themselves. Unintentional, but on brand, perhaps. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's move on to TV. uh, I'm afraid it's it's another woman-heavy thing. Uh, And are we talking about a woman who is at a pivotal point at her life, discovering who she is? Yes. So uh, one of of the highlights uh, on, on the service is a show called Julia, which is total comfort food. It's a sort of glossy mini-series about Julia Child. Do you know Julia Child? Do you know I do know her? Julia. I, I know Julia Child by reputation as this transformative American cook who kind of like educated the US in actually how to make good food, right? That is correct. So Julia Child, I kind of came across her through the Nora Ephron movie, um, Julia and Julia, Yes, in which Meryl Streep plays Julia Child, is that right? Yes, Meryl Streep plays Julia Child and uh, I think it's Amy Adams who plays a a kind of food blogger who's obsessed with her Mm. and uh, recreates all of her recipes. And her famous book was Mastering the Art of French Cooking because Julia Child went to France, her husband was a diplomat, and um, she had this kind of sensual awakening there. The bread, the butter, the, (laughs) the wine, the fresh produce like it just kind of sent her a bit mad and she really kind of 
came into herself through that experience and she wrote this book about it, brought it back to America and um, became one of the sort of groundbreaking TV chefs. And this TV show is about the kind of TV journey onwards. So we sort of see her pitching the show and uh, getting on TV and kind of building her career and seeing her star rising. In in middle age, really, she was in her 50s, you know, going through the menopause when all of this was happening. And so the, the show is called Julia. And who is Julia in Julia this time out? Um, she's played by the, the British actress Sarah Lancashire, who some people would know from Coronation Street. Others might recognise her from Happy Valley. I love Sarah Lancashire. She's so fantastic and kind of underrated, I think. In Happy Valley, her performance is, is astonishing. What I like about her is that she really captures Julia Child's kind of goofiness and her sort of very gawky charmingness. And, you know, this was a woman who was extremely competent and no-nonsense but she also wasn't afraid to mess up on TV and that human edge made her really relatable. And um, there's a documentary called Julia, which kind of goes into that. Yeah, which is actually also on Vera. So if you want to like gorge yourself on Julia Child, you can watch the Julia documentary and the Julia TV It'd show. make you very hungry doing both. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the, in, in the documentary as well, um, you get this sense of, of a woman who really knew what she was doing, um, but had such confidence in herself that she she knew that mistakes happened. And that's really charming that that's kind of built into the show. David Hyde Pierce um, from Frasier plays, yeah, plays Paul and uh, Bibi Newworth plays her best friend, Alvis. This is so, a great cast. Exactly. Already. You're, you're probably already sold. So this is, you, you sort of describe this as TV comfort food then. This is a very satisfying watch, would you say? It, it is a satisfying watch. And uh, I think, you know, it does kind of touch on some more interesting kind of political themes uh, around the period. You know, Julia Child became famous in the 1960s. This was this massive time of social upheaval of kind of civil rights movement, the introduction of the pill, the beginning of women's liberation. And yet here was this woman who had this sort of cozy domestic persona where she was cooking food for her husband. And uh, I think the show is interesting in the way it tries to kind of reconcile that tension. Mm. Wow. Okay. You've sold me. I'm going to go watch that straight away. And um, anything else that you would suggest we take a look at? I have heard really good things about Sweet Tooth, which is a sort of family-friendly post-apocalyptic fantasy show based on the comic by Jeff Lemire. It's set in a virus-ravaged world where babies are now being born as sort of human-animal hybrids who are being hunted. And uh, the 10-year-old hero is part deer, which, and to very, be honest, very sounds cute. cute. Yeah. It sounds really cute. And, you know, it's got this old-fashioned fairy tale aspect to it, which I think is sort of meant to be Netflix's antidote to Stranger Things. If Stranger Things is a sort of pastiche of 1980s Steven Spielberg, this is is kind of more indebted to the, the heart of those children's films that he made in that period. Mm, okay, fantastic. Anything else? I also think that uh, anybody with a, an interest in Jamie Dornan would do well to check out The Tourist. Yeah, I like his face. I like <laughs> his stature. Uh, I too like his face and like his stature, but I also think that he's a really strange and interesting actor. He's been in a real kind of range of films. I don't think that he should be judged on Fifty Shades of Grey alone. You know, I, I think he's more interesting than people give him credit for. And uh, in, in this show, which is set in the Australian outback in the desert, he plays a a character who isn't given a name. I think he's just called the man. Mm. And he is an amnesiac. 
So he gets into a car accident, he wakes up, he doesn't know who he is, all he knows is that people want to kill him. Um, but there's a, a sort of comedy edge to this show and uh, Jamie Dornan is very good at comedy. He doesn't get to do it very often, but there's a goofiness to him and a, a kind of likability um, that I think he's allowed to, to sort of play with a little bit more in this. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking about all these brilliant films and uh I have been inspired by all your suggestions and I'm I'm unsure whether or not to go and make some sort of like French classic dish or attempt to escape my reality by disappearing down some multiversal wormhole. How are you going to spend the rest of the day? Uh, well, what unexpected thing would you do to, to go and escape down a wormhole? Well, what did you say? Lick a shoe? I've got to lick a shoe? I've, well, the problem is you can't just like lick a shoe because now that's already been done. It has to be something completely new each time. I have to lick something else? <laughs> you have to do something else that's totally unexpected. Okay, well, I'll, I'll attempt to be um, uh, transcendently spontaneous at some point in the next few hours. I think I'll stick with the, uh, the birth bourguignon. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's the end of this episode of the Verba Magazine podcast, one that featured lots of suggestions for how you can escape this August, whether it's to the tiny Caribbean island of St. Bart's, into the heads and minds of Daft Punk, or by slipping through a wormhole into some sort of alternate multiversal reality. I've been Johnny Ensel, and this podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic. The producer is David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. We'll see you next month. Hold up. 